Elvis and Cressy, do you know this dynamic duo? Because you should, and you're about to meet them. They're the couple behind their namesake, the company Elvis and Cressy. Now, not only are they, oh my goodness, breathing new life into reused materials by turning them into luxury accessories, but they're championing the environmental responsibilities that we all should have. Sustainable manufacturing and leading the way and building community. And speaking to them both, I just, I literally just stopped in my tracks. Why? Why? Don't more of us think in their way? And we, we, we actually dissect that and understand why we're all herded into certain corners and we become cookie cutters of each other. You know, and their journey started when they rescued London's discarded fire hoses and saw beauty and saw opportunity and saw a way of absolutely slightly changing the world with them. And it has evoked so many feelings in me and it's going to do exactly the same with you. It makes you want to lead the charge. It allows you to glimpse into the future, this, this way that they think. And it's certainly not an easy path, but actually listening to this couple, they give you the confidence to understand what doing good means and it will blow your socks off. And I promise you that this is going to, this is going to be a conversation that gets the cogs turning and it will ignite ideas and it will encourage new approaches to all the issues and problems that you maybe have. So on that note, enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co., I've learned so much about taking risks, running a business and some extraordinary life lessons along the way. And I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoyed this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Hi, Cressy. Hi, Elvis. Welcome. Welcome Hi, to the Holly. podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I've known about your company for so long, and I've always felt that you are a visionary within retail and certainly within sustainability and luxury fashion. Um, and you've just got that twist and um, we're going to talk lots about it, but you sort of, you were early doors to businesses doing good 
And I've always known that about you. And I've always um, spoken about you. And so actually to speak to you both is a, a, it's a, it's really exciting for me. Well, we, f- we feel the same. I think we have known about you through Not on the High Street since Not on the High Street started because we we, we sold on Not on the High Street from you very did. early on. So we've been kind of parallel. I know. And gosh, it's a long time ago, by the way, mm. that started Not on the High Street, but we don't look a day older. So that's really good. Um, <laughs> Chrissy, I wanted to start with you on this podcast. We, we like to get into the sort of the starts of things. So when mm. I was um, reading up about you, you were born and raised in Alberta in Canada and your grandmother who you share your name with was your greatest influence tell me why she shaped your thinking I think it was because she was a legend to everybody who knew her she did crazy things like um, a university degree over a 17 year period while being a single mother in you know the prairies in Canada in the 1950s there was that. She was an incredible teacher. We used to walk with her down the street and people would come up to her and say, you know, Mrs. Kenny, you saved my my life. You were just an incredible inspiration to me. You're the best teacher I ever had. That happened to her a lot. And she didn't ever waste an opportunity or a windfall apple. And she never made one pie. She always made 22 pies. I, I don't know how <laughs> else to explain it. She was just a whirlwind and there was never any or resting. Even bedtime stories, you know, when, when you would cuddle in next to her to, to, to go to sleep, she wouldn't tell you a story. She'd say, now, let's talk about how to store cabbage through the wintertime. That was it. Really? Yeah. And, what, and you'd go into a world of your own with her? Yeah, I think I just learned from her all the time. And she was just really generous and kind. And that is what we all aspire to be. Every one of yeah. us in our family want to be more like her and want to make her proud of us. So that's kind of the, that she sets the tone for pretty much every day of, of how we run the business, of how we run our lives, of how we are with each other, and certainly mm. how I approach pretty much every challenge. I love that. I also read that she had you grow vegetables in the summer um, so that you um, wouldn't go without food in the winter. You know, it's it's incredible how we don't think like this the, these days. No, are there where where she grew up in Saskatchewan, if they didn't grow enough food through the summer and pickle it and jar it and can it and store it away, that was it. That was all that they that they had. And that spirit of holding on to everything and not wasting anything is certainly what lies behind and underpins a lot of my thinking. I also love that um, your school allowed you to vote on places that you wanted to visit Mm. um, when you were young. So you ended up visiting things like power stations and sewage plants and recycling centres. I mean, that's very, very forward thinking. Yeah, we had, we did, we also had an opera that was performed in our school and we we got to write stories on full scat paper that just went from floor to ceiling. It was a really amazing um, arts core school is what it was called. So we just were really allowed to be creative. But I loved the fact that we knew how our city ran. Um, Mm. We also had a massive oil refinery in the city. So we all got (laughs) firsthand look at that too. And it gave us the concept of oh, well, this is how the world works. This is where mm-hmm. power comes from. This is where sewage goes. And that doesn't really look right. And I don't really think that this is what we should be doing. So 
I think we all got very opinionated from very early age as well. I mean, fascinating. Shouldn't all children have this opportunity? And Elvis, you were born in the UK and I know fashion becomes something that you're interested in, but you didn't start with a, a view for fashion, did you? No. Um, I think you were talking about inspiration with Cressy and Cressy is an inspiring person and she is the flash of brilliance. I'm the graft behind it that kind of makes Cressy's flash of brilliance work. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't in, neither of us was in the fashion industry. We were, well, Cressy was very much in in the environmental environment industry. I was a problem solver in my previous job and mm-hmm. Cressy presents me with lots of problems for me to solve. And that's pretty much <laughs> our dynamic. Um, and I think because we didn't come from a fashion background, we didn't have any preconceptions of what was possible, what should or shouldn't be done, which is why we were able to kind of address fashion from a different angle. That's mm. why we break the rules. Yeah. Because we don't, we didn't know what they we were. We don't know we're breaking the rules. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that is the moment, isn't it, where the best businesses start because you're not coming from the same cookie cutter experience or set of rules that other people have had. And am I right in saying that you both met each other in Hong Kong and Cressy, you're working in venture capital and Elvis, you were project managing and you moved back to the London in 2004. Um, and Cressy, you heard about a problem the London Fire Brigade were having. Can you tell me about this conversation that you had that ends up Elvis trying to solve. But <laughs> but what was the conversation you 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 had? Well, I, I moved, yeah, I moved to London in 2004 and I was was really curious about the waste situation in the UK. So I, I'd been to some landfill sites, I'd been to some refuse transfer stations, things like that. And then I was in a very boring course on ISO 14001. And there was two guys from the London... It, it doesn't sound riveting. It was all about say. record keeping, which is not something I do now <laughs> well not or ever have done. <laughs> and <laughs> there was two guys that were sitting in the back, also not interested, but had been sent by sent there by the London Fire Brigade. And I sat next to them and I said, look, like, what, why are you guys here? What are you guys wasting? Are you wasting water when you're saving our lives? You know, I was just sort of jo- joking around and they said, yeah. oh, no, we've got... We've got a really leaky estate, you know, our our old Victorian firehouses are wasting a lot of energy because, you know, single glazed windows, etc. But the fire hose, we just don't know what to do with the fire hose. And I and I just said, Well, I'll have it. I'll take it. And they just like that. Yeah. They thought I yeah. was they thought I was joking. And they said, Well, you got you have to come to Croydon, because that's where all fire hoses go to die. And I went to Croydon on foot because I was training for the marathon. And I came back from Croydon to Brixton on foot with two 18 kilo hoses. <laughs> and that was how it started. Said no one ever. Yeah. Except yeah. you, by the way. Yeah. And and that was and that was and that was the moment, was it? No. That, that, there wasn't no. the moment. There was lots more that had to happen before oh, we got to the me, moment. Tell me, Elvis. Well, so Cressy came back with the fire hose. So far everything is is perfectly accurate. But the fire hoses then get got left in our front room of a shared four or five people sharing in a small house. And um, Cressy said, what are you going to do with these? And I said, well, what do you mean? What am I going to do with those? I'm going to work in a minute. You do something with them. <laughs> um, but that's where it kind of then started was that 
Cressy managed to make me feel responsible for the two hoses, which we we did find a use for. Um, we we were actually making a shed in the garden to put our bikes. You know the typical shed house. Everyone had their bikes in the front hall. We couldn't get in or out. Yeah. So we were putting a shed in the back so that we could put our bikes in them. And I looked at the hose. It's kind of terracotta red. And I thought, right, if we cut it into small chunks, we can make the roof of this shed that we're building out of the hose. And A, it would look cool. And B, it gets rid of the fire hoses from the front room. So we did it. <laughs> problem solved. Next day, two more hoses. No. <laughs> yeah, because I knew how to get to Croydon by then. So I could just keep going. <laughs> I could keep going and get more. Um, and that, so that's how what it was. And that, what was that? Because, I mean, obviously you have the – it's – Amazing. If you think about people listening and and sometimes the interviews that we have here and we listen to is when someone just reimagines mm. something, you know, and we're going to talk about what a lot of your sort of thoughts of where great ideas come from and things. But isn't it amazing that actually the fire hose, this just one encounter, um, the way that your brain received that information you know, the, the pairing of you can literally change the actual course of your life. It, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's very simple. It it's, is. quite, it's very, very beautiful and romantic. One thing that, Cressy, a word that Cressy and I use a lot when we talk about, you know, our journey over the, nearly the last 20 years with, with Elvis and Cressy is serendipity. There are so many things mm. that happened that, or sliding doors, but, you know, that they could have mm -hmm. not happened and it would have either led us down a different path or led to a dead end mm. so when the two new hoses arrived in the front room um i was wearing a leather belt and the leather part of the belt broke uh, but the buckle was still good and i looked at this hose and i thought oh well maybe it's long and straight maybe i could make a belt from the hose and um so i got some scissors from the kitchen started trying to cut the hose up to make a belt you know, hand was cramping. So I was just using sort of a pair of paper scissors. And that, at that point, Cressy got a call from one of her contacts who was working at, at Wembley. Um, do you remember there were some concerts? It was Live Earth. So the Al Gore, Al Gore concerts. Yes, yeah. yes. And so, you know, it was all about, the, the message was climate change, the environment. And, but the problem was, is that Wembley wasn't doing anything on message. Uh, so, mm. and, Cressy had this previous business doing environmental packaging and they actually approached her to say, could you help us, you know, to put recycled toilet paper or, you know, reusable coffee cups, that kind of thing. And, and it, and it said, was ridiculous to say, oh, I, I could turn Wembley green for a day. Can you imagine changing all the cups and all the toilet paper and all the bin bags and all of the for a day <laughs> or for one event? Yeah. I, it just I just said, yeah. oh, this is ridiculous, but I can make belts out of decommissioned fire hoses. <laughs> You want toilet paper? I can give you belts. But so I looked up. We I hadn't even finished cutting the first belt. So you know we were, and then she was already selling. Oh, I then heard her say a thousand, no problem. <laughs> Six oh weeks, absolutely. Because I just thought I thought this is great. We've I've never made merchandise before. I've never made a a, a product like this, and. I couldn't believe that on this one phone call that they were just saying more and more and y yes and yes. And um, so that was it. <laughs> and Elvis, you just got cutting. You got better scissors, We both stayed up that night to see what we could do, how many we could cut. And I think I probably cut four and Cressy cut two and a half or something. 
And we sort of thought, yeah, a thousand is not going to happen. It was awful. We woke up the next morning with just claws because our, our hands were so badly yes. cramped that we couldn't, we couldn't move them anymore. Yeah. So we went back to them and we said, look, we might be able to do 500 in the time frame. Uh, and we invested. This was our first investment that was not organic. Uh, that, that we actually put our own money in for rather than the business's money. Yep. And we bought a rotary cutter for £40. Um, it looks and that like was it. an electric pizza cutter, basically. So it's a, it's a pizza <laughs> rolling pizza slicer, but with a motor attached to it. So very dangerous. Oh, right. And yes, but cuts better than paper scissors. Much better yes. than paper scissors, yes. And we sold them. We sold yeah. the belts. They all we sold, sold the belts. We couldn't believe that either. And I think that also reminds and me. And that was the first product, was yeah, it? Yeah, and it, that that was a, just an eye-opener that, think about what people buy at a concert at that stage. You know, this is yeah. early 2000s. You buy not a DVD belts. or a CD and a T-shirt, t-shirt. not a 25-pound belt, and, and they sold out. So we thought, well, that's a that's a business probably. Um, so I went back to Croydon and got some more hoses. <laughs> Drag some more. And I, I love how you talk about the material, you know that you, you, you. I read that you dragged through mud, glass, and fire, and they save people's lives. Again, putting this sort of, you know, we, you know, if you looked at it, yes, we all know that, but no one had properly looked at it. No one had seen it through your eyes, and this uh, circularity and this reciprocated um, model that you've built into your your business. Tell tell me about that because you've raised. We're going to get into your sort of journey, but through your business, tell me about this circular side of it and how much you've raised for um, the firefighters charity. Well, we we always, there, the circular economy didn't exist as a concept when we started. Ellen no. MacArthur was still sailing. Um, but we, for for me, I thought there was this this idea that, you know, you you reduce, you reuse, and then you recycle. Recycle is last. So we're right in that reuse space by keeping this hose going, giving it a second mm-hmm. life. And from the first day that I met the firefighters, I said, look, I'm going to take these two hoses away. But if I do anything with them, I'm going to give you half. And they thought that was even funnier than me taking the hoses because they couldn't imagine anyone would ever give us any money for them. So the reason that we have over time developed this language is that I loved the hoses from the first minute I saw them. I thought they were great. I could see that potential. But in the world of luxury, what you have to do is is share that love. You have to get other people to see what you see. Mm. And language helps with that. Reminding people that it's a life-saving material helps with that. And for us, you, you can't be a circular business unless there's a circular flow of capital too. Yes. Which is why from the fire hose range, 50% of the profits go to the firefighters charity. From our rescued leather work, 50% goes to Barefoot College where we train women to be solar engineers. Because there's there's kind of never enough good that you can do. Mm. And that's how I think businesses need to be designed. So we Elvis designs the the products with so much skill and craftsmanship and intention. And and we put that same effort into the business itself, how the business functions. And businesses, mm. in my view, should function to do good. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. A lot of people previously to you might disagree that that was the point and what's the point the point is money you know yeah. that is really what we've we've grown up haven't we just experiencing that Elvis from your point of view this relationship that then had started with the firefighters charity and everything it must be a very special relationship after this long it is uh, um so we've been working with them uh, 
you know, coming up to 20 years. Um, and the every year when it comes to do, do, donation time, it's a very exciting time for us. Um, and we've been able to make a donation every year. <laughs> the first year we made our donation without checking with our accountant. And then he then came back to us and started talking to us about double entry accounting and how actually we didn't technically make a profit. So we shouldn't, <laughs> but we were like, but there's some money in the account. So we gave them half of it. Um, so, uh, but it is an incredible feeling. Um, I know that during COVID, we, we made one of our donations just after COVID hit uh, and everything was locked down. If you think about how traditionally a charity like the Firefighter Charity raises their Month, the uh, the majority of their mm -hmm. money, you know, doing sponsored car events, washes. doing car yes. washes, all those things that just stopped overnight. So when we were, and we were actually, we made quite a considerable donation that year. And so that was exceptional to, to, to be able to have that impact. Um, and it is, you know, the, the business model is interesting because obviously a business has to make money because you have to you have to pay bills, you know, that yeah. we're in the same world as everyone else. We have to pay our staff as well as we possibly can. We have to do all these things, but, um, it's not the main, it's, it's not how we measure. It's not our main measure of our success. Mm -hmm. You know, our main measures of success are how much, how much material have we diverted from landfill each year? And then how big a donation can we then make to our charitable partners? So we also work not with yeah. just the firefighters charity, but also with Barefoot College um, as well, which is, is another incredible charity that, that we've been working with for seven or eight years now, Chrissy. Yeah, twenty since twenty thirteen. Yeah, almost so almost like ten years since twenty twenty four now. <laughs> it's incredible. I know, isn't it funny when you do that? You're like, mm. oh, hang on a second, that's yeah. thirty years ago. Um, mm. the, the, I was going to mention that you started with the fire hoses, but then you went into rescuing other raw materials you mentioned it the leather offcuts and the parachute mm -hmm. silk um how hard has it been so you know you're you're there saving this material you didn't have a fashion background but then you put all this material that could be described as ugly you know could into aesthetics into fashion with sustainability, which is not normally that sexy, um, as as sort of your mission, how on earth did you wrap your heads around that? Oh, I don't think we even thought about it. For uh, we loved the we loved the fire hoses, and that was enough to get us started. The reality is, fire hose is quite a sexy material. It is red. It's a great color. It's a brick red. Most I mean, of it. I never thought I'd have this conversation. Just <laughs> keep telling me about it. And it's and it's and it's durable. And yeah. when we were doing research really, really early on, we knew that nitrile rubber, the material that makes fire hose, has been used in the luxury industry. Just they're using a virgin raw material instead of one that has this beautiful provenance and history. And yet they're always talking mm. about provenance and history. And here we go with the material that already has it in spades. So I think the biggest challenge for us always is that we don't have a supply chain. Okay. So a traditional business, you've got your supply chain, you've got the people you call to buy the raw materials mm -hmm. that you need to make things. That also makes you linear or helps in making you linear, which is a bad thing. But we have partnerships which is just so much more fun. So instead of having someone that I call to order more things, we have a wonderful relationship with London Fire Brigade. And 
we know how much waste they produce every year. And probably the biggest high in the whole history of the company for me was that when we started taking these hoses, I said, we are going to solve this problem for you. That's what we're going to do. And I said that without having any clue what we were going to make with it. That was pre pre the roof tiles. Mm -hmm. And we got to about 2010 and we had a business that was big enough to take all of London's hoses every year. It was, it was kind of a, a miracle and it was just such a high and a realization that, Hey, we can, we can fix these problems. So then I started snooping around for more materials and that was how we developed this whole portfolio of materials because essentially I love a landfill and I love talking to the truck drivers at the landfill site. I love finding out where all of these cool raw materials come from. I love industrial estates and big biffa bins. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of lament at the lack of creativity that we have yes. in, in the UK because, because actually all that we do is apply a creative, uh, our own creativity to these challenging materials. And I wish we were asking designers better questions. Right now we're asking most designers in the fashion industry to design 25 collections a year and oh, mm -hmm. make them interesting and make them innovative. We're not asking them to design a better future. We're not asking them to design systems where everyone is paid well and everyone is a stakeholder. We're not asking them to save the watershed and keep sewage out of the rivers. And those are more important questions. And you get, why are we occupying some of the most creative brains in the country? Because we do have amazing designers yep. with the wrong questions. It must be very frustrating to have your brain and, and be thinking of those things. And we're going to talk about your views on creativity. Elvis, I wonder what your views are in terms of how we all shop and how so sort of society is consuming, because I do think that we are in a definite transition phase, you know, actually in so many areas, aren't we, in 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 society and the way we're looking at things and thinking about things. I was talking about, you know, mental health the other day, and it was only 10 years ago, you know, men's mental health. I mean, you wouldn't even dream of even speaking about it. And now we are really, really waking up. We're nowhere near where we need to be. How, how do you think society makes that next leap because inevitably what people think is that shopping sustainably costs more and when we're thinking about the cost of living crisis and all those sorts of things what's your point of view well the, the i mean one very interesting thing is cost is is that cost is not just price um mm. you know there is a cost to everything that we do and and that cost is not just how much money you've 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 parted in order to purchase something. There has been a cost to the people that have made it. There's been a cost to the planet in how it's been, how the materials have been produced or grown. And so, when we think about uh, you know cheap products, you know a t-shirt for a, f a few pounds, including VAT, including delivery mm -hmm. charges, you just have to think. How could that possibly have been produced? Yeah. For, at, at what cost has that been produced at a cost that's that's acceptable? And I think we're getting to a point where people are now much more aware of um, the importance of longevity, uh, the importance of durability. So not just from how long will it last, but how long will it be fashionable? So certainly for Cressy and I, we've only ever made pieces that are 
perennials. They're classics. They're, they're mm-hmm. not going to go out of style. And one of the reasons for that is when we started, or everything, all of the materials we do, are they're unique. It's pioneering. There's no one else doing it. So we can't take best practice from other places and go, oh, this is how we should make the gusset from a fire hose because no one else has done no, it or yeah. is doing it. So we do have to learn as we're going. And I suppose, um, Chrissy, the, is it the forces, the the powers are sort of working against us <laughs> in mm. these things. You know, you, you only have to, you know, think about when you hear that they create technology that will break. So you are buying it again and mm. or um, et cetera, et cetera, the, the clothes and the fashion and all those things. I know that you're fascinated by consumer behaviour and you've got something to say about the seatbelt, for example. Mm. Talk to me about the seatbelt. I suppose, I mean, I could go to, to, to regulation. I think to me, the seat, the seatbelt stands for regulation, right? We, we, the market isn't free. I've never agreed with Friedman. I think he was ridiculous and really pointed us in the wrong direction. We have to, like Elvis was saying, recognize the cost of things and the collateral damage caused by all of the things that we do. Food and fashion have never been as cheap as they are now at this Mm. cost, this externality to somewhere else. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if the government gave the bill, the NHS bill for type 2 diabetes to the seven companies that produce most of the ultra high processed foods? in the world. Wouldn't it be interesting if instead of letting Sheen import clothes into this country, we stopped them at the border and flagged them as class A drugs? Because there's no possible way that those products can be made without modern slavery. And we do have modern slavery laws that we're just refusing to to basically commit to and to basically Mm -hmm. enforce. So I, I think for me, I, I think if I'm thinking of a seatbelt, I'm thinking of there was a time when we didn't have them and people went through windscreens. Now we've got them and people get bruises across their chest. I think we need an enormous amount of regulation in in fashion. And there is a law that that we have talked about in the, in the UK for a long time, extended producer responsibility, but every government seems to push it out to the next government to put on the books. And if we had it, it would be a miracle because Sheen and Primark and all of these companies would have to think of the death of their product before it went out there. McDonald's would have to think of its packaging. Cigarette companies mm. would have to think of the cigarette butts because they'd all be financially on the hook for the death of those items. That's how we get circularity. We're not going to get it by praying for everyone to suddenly develop the conscience that Elvis and I have, (laughs) because as, as Elvis and I've learned over 20 years of doing this now, um, that is probably what makes us the most unique is that we are willing to live our values through our company and we're not willing to manufacture at the lowest common denominator. We're not willing to pay people less than a living wage. We're not willing to have unpaid interns. We're not willing to put sewage into the rivers. We're not willing to do these things. Um, and we just want a level playing field where everyone has to, to live at a standard that is civilized. Yeah. On Conversations of Inspiration, I only ever invite on guests with a fascinating story to tell and who aren't afraid to go there. People brave enough to be vulnerable and share that life isn't always as shiny as it appears and show that to become successful, we have to experience some tremendous downs as well as the ups. Because isn't that ultimately what gets us where we need to go? 
It's also why I've built my marketplace this way. Yes, you'll find thoughtful gifts for birthdays, anniversaries and special occasions like Mother's Day, for example. But I also wanted to create a place where you could shop not just by department, but through emotion. The moments in life we don't always share with the world. A place that helps you celebrate the huge milestones, but also helps you find the words or the right gift when darkness creeps in and you just don't know what to say. It's also why we celebrate people's niches, those funny things about us that makes us just us. Whether you know someone who really is into wild swimming or who's passionate about birds or just happens to love Munster Munch, like me, if this sounds like an interesting way to shop, head to holly.co to explore. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. It's incredible listening to you. I was speaking to Mark Shaler, who runs an innovation and environmental consultancy, and he spoke about the school of thought that you have to choose between profit and planet. That's mm. actually what people have in the past definitely thought about. And his view is, you know, doing good is, you know, no longer a nice to have and it's a necessity. And I'm wondering with what you just said there, surely, I mean, my mind just goes... I'm positive, and we're going to talk about the Burberry Foundation, but outside of this, I'm like, why aren't big companies, fashion companies, just knocking down your door? Because this is coming. I mean, it, yes, you're mm. saying it's going to be pushing out. To, each government pushes this out, it out like many things because we've got such short spaces of time. No one wants to be that unpopular in their mm. period of the seat, isn't it? But the whole thing is, is that why they know it's coming. So... They should be absolutely trying to juice your sort of the how you have structured an organisation. Do, do you get outreach from people? Do, do Or is it still the profitability over the planet? We do get um, outreach all the time. I do a lot of lecturing and talking to companies of all sorts, not just in the fashion space. And generally it comes down to the excuse I'm always given is shareholders. This yeah. will not work because the shareholders demand a profit and mm -hmm. fiduciary duty. I have this duty to maximize profit to shareholders. That's what we've got to, that's what we've got to rip up. The Companies Act is what we've got to remove. Um, Mark and I are very much on the same page with there's no profit on a dead planet. Uh, mm. So uh, yes, we do talk to them. Most of them don't act, I think, through fear. They will change, but they will change when they're forced to change. Yeah. They'll change when the customers demand okay. them yeah. to change. So those two things is what is what we're waiting for. I do think there's increased customer demand now, which for a long time they've greenwashed their way around. But we are all very happy about the anti-greenwashing legislation that's coming through. So I think it is a matter of time. I just think, un unfortunately for Elvis and I, the that we thought this time was going to come about 10 years ago. When we first started and we met, you know, Al Gore, he said, we've got 10 years to save the planet. And I thought, great. It's about, that was about 2007 when we met him. But I was like, we've got, <laughs> by 2017, we'll have it done. That's the program that I'm on. Mm -hmm. And what did we do in that time? We frittered it away. So I just think that it has to speed up now. And I don't know what else people need other than just the weather to make them change and make them work mm. faster. It would be nice if we came back in five, ten years' time and did another podcast with you. And instead of saying Elvis and Cressy 
sustainable fashion pioneers, you know, zeitgeist of sustainable fashion or any of those sort of words which are used to describe us as just Elvis and Cressy mainstream fashion. As in mm, yes. our model is the accepted model. You know, th- those adjectives were used about us in 2005, 2006, 2007. They shouldn't still be being no, used right. about Elvis and Cressy's model. It, you know, and It's embarrassing. It was 20 mm. years ago when we were, you know, told that it would never work. At, at this point, we can now say it works. Here we are. We've been here. We're still doing it. There was a, we were interviewed. No debt, no investment. So mm. it really works. You know, we're, we're not, we, we, we haven't had 10 rounds of crowdfunding that mm. we've never paid back. You know, this actually works. And, uh, you know, we, we had an interview with the, uh, with the FT early on, which is weird for a fashion company to be yeah. interviewed mm. in the FT. And they wanted us to put what our turnover was. That was the thing. So they do the interview and then in the top, you know, right-hand side of the, of the article, uh, they would put what the company's turnover is. And we said, look, we're, we're not willing to do that. And the reason is because we actually think that that's not important. That's, that's not why this company exists. So we want you to use some other metric other than turnover. And eventually we won. And we were, the, I think we're still the only one that hasn't in the series. It's a long going series <laughs> where they, they haven't put? used turnover. How much waste we collected. <laughs> And how much we gave to charity. I was like, I'll give you two figures. I'll give you kilograms and pound signs, but I'm not giving you top line revenue. It's, it's, it is it's amazing. So tell, talk to me about, well, I'm going to go back to your story, actually, because I am I could sidetrack the whole way through this interview because I'm fascinated. In 2017, you announced a partnership with the Burberry Foundation. And this was a result of wanting to tackle a much larger problem than fire hoses. And this is the whole, uh, you know, what we're talking about. And I read a statistic on your site um, that estimated at least 800,000 tonnes, I can't believe this number, 800,000 tonnes of leather waste are produced by global leather industries each year. Mm. Um, Tell me more about how the foundation works and how it works to solve the problem. So, I, we actually met Burberry in 2013. This is, gives you an idea of how slow and hard it is to work with some of the big companies and not for their lack of, of wanting to try. I mean, they mm-hmm. had a really committed team. We first met them in 2013 when we had just introduced our leather solution. And we, int- we introduced that based on working with saddle makers. So we're talking about people who produce tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of waste. And they came to us and said, can you help us? We produce a lot of this. And we said, sure, but we're tiny. We're so tiny. You guys will swamp us with this volume. And we got together and we worked out uh, through the Burberry Foundation how they could support us so that we could train apprentices, um, do all kinds of amazing work experience opportunities to bring people into our way of working, but also through that expand our workforce and, and big education programs as well. Big within, education programs. Within Burberry, but also externally as well. Wow. And that allowed us to spread. So they made it a part of what the foundation did. But that was also then really tricky because it meant that they couldn't promote what we did or couldn't market what we did. Mm. And and yet if they'd done those two things, that would have also solved the problem and, and maybe helped us to scale a little bit faster. But it, it was wonderful working with them and is still wonderful working with them because I do... I do fundamentally think, and this is why Elvis and I will always work with bigger companies, is because we are 7,000 times smaller than Burberry. That's just the reality. We can change something 
about the 800,000 tons of leather. We can prove that it doesn't have to be waste and that it has value. We can prove that a ton of leather waste is actually worth 100,000 pounds of value just with a bit of creativity and ingenuity. Mm. But we can't solve the problem unless we've got help. And we don't have 150 years to become the next um, LVMH. Yes. I'm, I'm not interested in building an empire. I'm interested in solving the problem now. And Elvis, Elvis loves to say this, but he's like, I'm not the bull in the china shop. I'm not that big, but I'm a really annoying fly in the nose of the bull <laughs> in the china shop. <laughs> and, and that's really what we strive for in all the collaborations that, that, we, that we work on, is that we want to we have impact and we want to have it now. Gosh, gosh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Elvis, tell me, for those listening, okay, the, the process of transforming these offcuts into wonderful new products. Yeah. What is that process? Okay, so I'm going to draw a picture in people's minds, hopefully. Okay, this we're, is, we're this shutting is our eyes. We're yeah, now listening okay. to Elvis. So you can see the hide of a, of a, of a cow. You can picture yep. it. Uh, uh, traditionally, a bag company will cut out the three or four shapes from that hide, or, or two shapes, maybe the front and the back, let's say, to make that product. And then they'll cut out a few more bits. Um, and then, and they'll have to discard a few bits because of mosquito bites, because of barbed wire scratches, because of stretch marks, because of all sorts of things. And then they'll cut out their pieces and the rest of it literally falls to the cutting room floor and is, at the end of the day, swept away and got rid of. And in some places, that can be 30 to 40% of the hide. Um, Incredible. And so what we came up... But the problem is, is they're all in small pieces that don't look like you can use them. Um, and so the challenge that, well, Cressy set me, <laughs> was what can we do with these small pieces? Because it's still virgin material. So what we developed is a modular system um, that, if you like weaves pieces together um, and so we can then cut out small pieces and then we can weave those back together to pretty much create any size of hide we like and it's got this incredible story this provenance it, you know they can talk to yes. you know what it was made from the charitable donation how it was made where it was made all with pride um, the story attached to the material yeah which isn't it? It's a marketing's dream, isn't it? It's, I mean, that's the <laughs> that's well, the funny it, thing about it is that. But we don't call it marketing at Elvis and Cressy. We call it life. The we truth. call it the truth. Mm. There is no marketing mm. in what we do. What we do, mm. the stories we tell, are what we're doing, what we're living on a day to day basis. Um, and that's what you have in terms of. But in, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got a small business or you've got an idea, you know that idea that we are all just sitting here giving Mark Zuckerberg more and more and more money because this is how we do marketing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Your material and and in in the point that you have demonstrated over the last twenty years, your material is your marketing. It's the fact that you can that hotel can tell that story and draw in the customers, and then su suddenly the hotel's values. Are starting to be spoken about and you normally would never even you know speak about such a thing and it just shows you the power of what we're missing we're blind and we're sort of driving blind to the fact that actually so many things that we do day to day within our organizations or the ideas or the material every single part of your company can be the marketing 
And actually, it's not just we've become slightly lazy, not working the muscle. You know, it's we've just become sort of zombies to the easiest common denominator or the e- what feels like the easiest thing to do. Um, and it's, it's fascinating because you've you've understood that for 20 years. I think what we, we like little young, young businesses, when they come to us and say, how do I, how do I start a business or what do I do? And I often say, you have to actually do something worth doing. It has to mm. actually be interesting. Otherwise it's going to be difficult to, to be authentically marketing it and talking to other people about it and getting them to celebrate what you do. You know, there are the, probably the best thing that we ever did was, was the donation to the firefighters charity because yeah. we put the business in that one act at the heart of a community in in service of a community. And there are 66,000 firefighters in the UK and they have family and they have friends and they have people who revere them who have never met a firefighter. There's a a website, uniformdating.com where people go to largely find someone in the fire service they can date. So, so by, by being generous, that one act of generosity, it's probably helped us build the business just through mm. that that design, that that just yes. through generosity. And we weren't thinking of it like that. But when a cold-hearted capitalist says to me, Oh, how can you afford to give half of your money away? I'm like, how can you afford not to? Yes. Yeah. And what are you spending <laughs> elsewhere in your organization? You know, that's the uh, the, the last two um interviews, you know, nursing and um, the social pantry, you know, social pantry, 11% of their organisation is ex-offenders. That has catapulted that catering company into a place that they never would have been, but it wasn't done by design in order to reach that place. Nursum, hand cream, because she was a nurse, actually now do- gives back to nurses in the NHS and supports them. Again, it's now become the nation's hand cream because of those elements and it's 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 incredible how big businesses haven't cottoned on to even what a difference it would make to the bottom line if they started to, to tell me opportunities for more brands maybe i'm thinking particularly luxury brands to be more of a force for good in the world do you think that they're starting to understand this it's definitely something that their sustainability teams understand it's definitely something that, and this has changed. Okay. Let's say, I don't know, it was probably more than 10 years ago. Now I was at a world economic forum meeting and I met the then president of one of the biggest French luxury houses. And he was very patronizing and said, what you do isn't real. It's not, it's not a real business. And I'm not sure if he thought we were hobbyists or dilettantes or something like Mm -hmm. that, but it just didn't work in his brain. And we now we've now done a huge lecture series for that for the for the senior leadership teams of that same company 10 years later we would not have been allowed through the door there 10 years ago so i yeah. i do think it's i do think it's changing but it's the pace that i'm worried about it's the pace it's yep. the pace i read the ipcc reports i know where we're at with climate change and the it's not fast enough so i think that's what elvis and i are constantly trying to do is inject um inject pace and a sense of urgency Mm. I'm going to ask you about the word creativity in a second. But just as a couple, when you go to bed at night, knowing those reports, just on a side note, just occurred to me when you say that, how you've been doing this 20 years, it's my 20th year anniversary as well, this 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 year. And 
what pressure do you feel as a couple, as individuals? You know, it must be really, really fucking frustrating, I have to say. Mm. It's Friday, so we can say that. Yeah, yeah, we're going to say it's a fucking Friday. Um, But, you know, you must, you know, we're going to carry on the interview, but I just wanted to pause that for a minute and just say, you know what, for us founders, you know, we're, we're coming up with these solutions, you know, to do good, to do better, to change things and everything. And then people aren't listening or not going fast enough. And the, the little issue you're talking about is the entire um, health of this entire planet. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, do you, how do you compute that on a Friday? I think it's interesting. Uh, what, what's the phrase about uh, the devil makes work for idle idle hands like we I think the way we manage it is we just don't stop because when Mm -hmm. you stop that's when you start to question that's when the angst comes in that the the existential questions start to be asked Elvis and I don't have time for existential angst because we don't have time for it we're just too busy when we go to bed at night we just pass out because we're tired (laughs) because we're getting a lot of stuff that I mean we run a a farm and and a fashion business um, and we were busy when we just had a handbag business. So yeah. it's now totally ridiculous. I mean, I, I should ask you just the farm question, but let me just, because I, I actually don't know how you do it, but just, I, I just, creativity, the word, um, it's just, I, I, and I love how you think about it, but just generally, you know, when I think about my world and small businesses and I look at retail and I look at everything and I just look at the lack of it, um, generally, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, the mostly on the high street or et cetera, et cetera. What is your feeling about the word creativity? Well, this, this is something that I started to talk about a couple of years ago, and I feel really passionately about it is that the creative industry for a really long time has had an, a pass when it comes to the environment because they were doing something innovative and it had to be pure. And really in the luxury companies, the thing that drives me the most crazy is that the sustainability team is not allowed to influence the creative team. The chief designer is a king. It's a feudal system Mm -hmm. and nobody can talk to them. It's some of them. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to ride in the elevator with them. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just these precious people with their entourages and they're supposed to blue sky think. The problem with blue sky thinking is that it stinks for the environment and it stinks for people when you suddenly go, oh, I want to make a million pound bag out of gold and crocodile and diamonds. What is the point of that bag? Why did that crocodile have to die? And diamonds on a bag? Where are you going to carry this? Now you have to have a security guard and an Escalade to drive around it. It's, it's sort of obscene. So for me, I started to say, actually, we should strip this title creative from some of these people. They're not creative. They're destroying the environment. They're destroying the social fabric of society in places like uh, Bangladesh or where we have a huge amount of garment workers so yeah, they're destructors now. That's how I think of people who mm. have misused for a very long time the term creative. Because to me, when you're doing something creative, it it should be something quite pure and innovative, but it has to be actually a creation. And a cre- you can't yes. create something at the same time as you destroy something else. They they don't they don't work together at all. And it goes to your point that you've coined the phrase backwards design. Because that is the point. If, if, if Mr. Elevator Man and his entourage was actually looking at the idea or the solving of the problem, and that was the, that's what you're saying, isn't it? It's the starting point. 
you know, what would that bag, the crocodile diamond bag be? It would be made of decommissioned fire hose. Yeah, but exactly. But also, but maybe his brain is actually fantastic. But he's starting at the wrong, and this is what you're saying, we're using all these brains that might invent incredibleness. But we're not, as you said, asking the right question, starting from that point. Yes, because someone will say, ooh, I really want our store in Kyoto to have the same look as the new scarf we've come out with. And they don't think that through that decision to, well, that means that store, that entire building is now going to be wrapped in PVC temporarily Mm -hmm. that then has to be taken off and destroyed. Just Mm -hmm. someone will make a design decision that has all kinds of consequences. And it is because they're not doing it backward. It's because they're not starting with problems and they don't actually understand systems thinking either because they think of of doing one thing at a time instead of how does that one thing sit within an ecosystem. And that's never been made more clear to Elvis and I than when we came to the farm and we're in an honest-to-God ecosystem that we are trying to resuscitate and save. Yeah. One microorganism at a time. So we we are very aware of systems here. And that's that. That's how it has to play out in creative industry too. Or they're just going to keep driving us to destruction. Elvis, did you want to say something there? Yeah. What well, I mean, I think it can't be considered creative if it creates more problems than it solves. Mm. Um, I think that's the the reality of it. But often the mm. the issue that big companies have is that the creative sit in one part of the building, one part of the country, one part of the world. And the makers sit somewhere else completely separately. And so that, you know, when we design our products, so when we make our fire and hide products, which is a combination of fire hose and the, the the rescued leather, it's modular. So if we want a bag, then our bag size is going to be a four by three or a five by two, or because we will mm-hmm. use all of that material. I mean, one of the interesting things about so we are a fully vertically integrated business in that every single stage of the business is done by the business so we're sort of we are the tannery we 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 mm. get the dead cows in and we make them into into a new material we create our our raw materials so everyone here knows just how much work goes into turning a hose into a raw material you know every single leather piece is we've taken that leather we've individually cut out each piece of leather we've individually woven it with our own hands and then stitched it and and created these products so why the hell would you waste it would you waste two-thirds of a bit yes you change the size you make it fit Mm. you make it work so yeah gosh i mean this as so many people are learning so much as we speak Each week, I hand this ad break over to our partners at Royal Mail, where they share some of the ways they can help if you run your own small business. And one of these is their Parcel Collect service. Now, I don't know about you, but if your working life is anything like mine, then every single second counts. My team will tell you that nothing makes me happier than finding more efficient ways of doing things so that we can spend less time on the chores and admin and more time on the important stuff. And that's why Parcel Collect is brilliant, because it does exactly what it says on the tin. You simply buy your postage online, choose the Parcel Collect option, and then Royal Mail will come and pick up your packages when it suits you. 
They'll even bring the printed labels if that's easier. And then they take care of the posting, leaving you free to get on with growing your business. It's incredible. Just head to Royal Mail Small Business Hub at royalmail.com to find out more. Now, back to this week's conversation of inspiration. You were one of the first certified B Corps. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know, in recent years, we're seeing more and more businesses join this movement um, and some particularly big multinationals. Um, and there have been some criticisms that this movement is becoming too big or too diluted. Um, and others say that it's, you know, short-sighted and it's actually encouraging, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it, it's uh, we're a B Corp. And and it's it, the intention is fantastic. Tell me about what you think what's happening at the moment. Well, we yes, we were one of the founding UK B Corps, and we got involved in it because we again wanted to move the dial. We can yep. only achieve so much on our own, so let's so see what we can do collectively. And the first fifteen B Corps were all very Elvis and Cressy like, you know. There yep. were businesses that resonated with us. There are founders that we could sit at a camp, campfire with quite happily yep. and get along with. <laughs> it is not always going to be that way. It is a very broad church. And there are some organizations that I think, holy crow. Um, but at the same time, I applaud them for entering into a space where they really are going to be interrogated for being there. They really are going to be questioned. They really are going mm -hmm. to be harassed because people are going to assume that there's some kind of greenwashing going on. The reality yeah. is it's a broad church and it's a broad, it's a broad points-based system. You can certify at 80 points. The reason I like it is because you can't park at 80 points. Anybody who joins at 80 or 81 the next time they recertify, they have to be yep. improving their score, which means over time mm -hmm. they will change and they have to bring in all kinds of teams in order to do that. They have to change their governance, their business model, how they work with their employees. It's not all environmental, so we can't confuse it with a purely environmental certification. And I guess I, guess I, have, I have to be patient with it. Sometimes I'm not patient with it. And I know that the standards are tuning up and tightening up, but it isn't a lot of B Corps. There's hundreds of thousands of businesses in mm. this country. There's just over 1500 that, are B, that yeah. are B Corps. We are a loud drop in the ocean. There are more social enterprises than B Corps. Now that's like one step further. And we're also a social, uh, a certified social enterprise. And I, I think that if we can, we, if we can keep it with that philosophy that businesses need to evolve towards the Better. environment, towards people, towards more stable governance structures, then we will eventually get there. But again, mm. the pace is too slow. I want everybody to be a B Corp yesterday and everybody mm. to be above 120 points 20 mm. years ago. And and mm. that's where the frustration comes from me is that again, I, I, I want it to have more pace, but I do still think it's an incredibly valuable movement and how wonderful that 15 or so pioneering businesses in the UK have been able to attract multinationals to the certification because Absolutely. of how, how cool we look and how much fun we're having and how sexy this all is. 
Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think you're right to remind us, even though we might live in little ecosystems where B Corp is spoken about a lot, ultimately in the big wide world, um, yeah, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. I'm getting to the farm bit now, Elvis. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to hear about this farm. It's in uh, Faversham, is that right? Faversham, 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 yeah. Faversham in Kent, and it's your home and your HQ, and it's at the very heart of all you do. And I know you've undertaken a lot of work to restore a basically downgraded ecosystem, and you've planted more than three thousand trees. You've constructed a wetland centre um, system, not wetland yeah. centre. Sorry, I don't know where that came it's from. Not a visitor um, centre. Yeah, Cressy exactly. Would, I don't know Cressy why. I, I think maybe was. I went to one when I was a child or something yeah. using heat pumps and not fossil fuels and the list goes on and you've committed to be net zero by 2030 um why did you decide to do that was was the business now not enough you know in 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 the sense when you, you weren't doing enough good you wanted to take it up another notch what was the because it's not easy, right? I mean that that is <laughs> You're that is actually that is yeah. actually that is it though. The two threats of our time are climate change and biodiversity loss. And we didn't feel we were doing enough to tackle those things head on. What we have loved about Elvis and Cressy over the years is it's given us a platform to say, no, this can be done. This can be done well. We're doing it here. We don't have to be activists. We are doivists. We're showing, proving mm -hmm. every day that it can be done. And we thought regenerative agriculture is tiny and it needs people to really experiment with it. And a lot of traditional farmers can't because you have to kind of go without four years of any income. You have to do a really high risk mm. change with your land. And farmers, the average farmer in this country earns 14,000 pounds a year and is huge amounts of debt. We can do this. We can take on this kind of risk. So yeah, that was kind of the impetus behind doing it. Um, and then we ended up with the farm we ended up with because let's put it this way, we didn't have loads of money. This farm was grade three degraded pasture. All the buildings were in an absolutely appalling state. The The best building on the site was an old steel barn with all the windows shot out and a failed asbestos roof. I mean, it was the perfect farm for Elvis and Cressy because it was a shithole. Uh, the septic system had failed. Everything, everything about it was terrible. And that's why it was affordable. But also that's why we have the potential to really transform it. Did it scare you going into it? Did you think it was going to uh, distract you from from the business at hand? Or did you think that this was the next part of the business? I, I, yeah, I, it's interesting. I don't think it would distract because it's not it's not other to the business. It is, mm -hmm. it's still the business. It's still Elvis and Cressy. Um, so in terms of, is it going to take us away from what the main core of the business is? No, because this is now the main core of the business. It, the, the whole thing we have now we are creating our own ecosystem uh, on lots of different levels. So from an environmental level, but from a business level, and you know one of the big things about regenerative agriculture, and this is a you know you talk about you were talking about B Corp and how is it being co opted perhaps well. Potentially, the word regenerative is being co-opted, is being used when perhaps it shouldn't. But at the same time, if you start excluding companies like, no, you're you're not in, so therefore you're out, then mm. th th where's the incentive to, you yeah. know, I, I always say to Cressy, isn't it ridiculous that we have to 
put a badge on 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 ourselves saying that we're good actually shouldn't the assumption should be if you've not got a badge it's because you're a good good business good person good whatever if you've got a badge it's because you're bad so you should have to be a bad person's badge so i shouldn't have to go to the supermarket and walk up the coffee aisle looking for rainforest alliance fair trade whatever it is i should assume that every bag of coffee i pick up has not been made by slaves has been made in a sustainable way and if it hasn't they have to put a badge on themselves saying we don't make coffee in a good way yeah. we use slave, slave, modern slavery you know all of these things that that should be the way that it's going you shouldn't have to proclaim how good you are you the assumption should be that everyone is good mm. um and yes can but, you imagine this this wheat was grown with excessive amounts of glyphosate and dicamba and all kinds of other chemicals that we have no idea how much cancer they cause or what they do in the environment or then that the, the neighboring pasta this is made from biodynamically grown wheat on a mixed farm in northern italy well which one are you which one are you going to choose mm. and this is why i think marketing has to come down more to the truth we, we, we are labeling for good. And what Elva says is so important. If we labeled for bad, if we labeled with the truth, there's not many companies that would keep being able to attract yes. staff. If their chocolate bar said causes diabetes, sugar from produced through Haitian slave by, by the work of Haitian slaves, because that's where a lot of sugar comes from. And the, the chocolate has really very little chocolate in it. It's mostly paraffin wax. I mean, no one's buying that chocolate bar, Gosh. but that's what most chocolate bars are. <laughs> it's, I, I, I'm having that moment. Listeners will, uh, I'm coming up to my 200th episode um, this year and um, listeners will know that I, I get to a point where I'm just in, I just feel very frustrated when I meet folks like yourself, where I just want the country to be led by um, those who know best. And actually, because every single listener is listening and going, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'd bet that. And yet, as you said, Chrissy, you know, the frustration is we'll, we'll need to not hear your voice um, and we'll have to hear voices of those who absolutely don't care less, don't have the innovation and idea, don't have the balls for it, if I'm honest with you, or the risk or the the ability to see things differently. And it's and I always th think about, imagine if you've got the experts like yourselves and those that are looking, as you said, agriculture or health or um, retail to, you know, and pull people who are actually building brands, who've, who've done it, who see it, who've been in the in the factories, so to speak, what would actually happen? Yeah. It would be fun. It would be so much more <laughs> Wouldn't fun. Wouldn't it be fun? <laughs> and do you think that the majority of the public would support it? Yes, they would. It's yes. just that we've, we've just dulled them down as if they are sort of like just participating in all of this. It's not. They just feel powerless. They don't have anyone to aspire to or look up to and, 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 and advocate for. Yes. Yes. And really, it would be disruptive to change to this way of working would absolutely be disruptive, but no more disruptive than COVID and certainly no more disruptive than the climate nightmare that we are about mm -hmm. to face and no more disruptive than 
any of the economic shocks that we've had, like the banking crisis, mm. which we didn't get anything out of. So I think a lot of people, if you could say, look, there's going to be a little bit of disruption, but holy Hannah, we're going to have when some kind on the of other crazy side. adventure on the other side. Yeah, I think people would go for it. As a, but you do have to create ways of making sure that the disruption doesn't lead to more poverty and more disaggregation mm. of power. That That's always also in the back of my mind. How do we make sure that everybody comes along on, on the ride and nobody's excluded? And I suppose that's where our circular finance model, you know, the, yeah. we don't believe in the, in the increase in capital holdings of one individual. We, we think capital has to flow in a circular way too. So that's why we give the half of the money to charity because why, why should we have it? Gosh, more people like you. Yes, please. <laughs> it's Friday. It's Friday evening for those who are listening. We're here. We're not out gallivanting. We're, we're here talking about things that matter. And I've enjoyed this interview so much. I want to ask you both the roller coaster ride that you've been on over the last 20 years. Can, can you both describe what you would say has been a lowest point for you? I'll, but, I'll let Evels answer this because it's, uh, it's the same low. <laughs> so we planted our uh, vineyard in uh, two years ago uh, in the middle of the worst drought that the UK has ever had and the hottest temperatures that have ever been recorded. And Cressy and I sat at the top of the farm powerless to what was happening, to, to nature's destructive forces, knowing that the 12,000 vines that we had just planted, there is nothing that we could do to keep them alive that they were going to die. And that was so, so difficult to take. It was the the feeling of helplessness was just, you know, enormous. Mm. And that was a real low because, you know, you, we couldn't even take any learnings from it. We couldn't even go, well, but this is what we'll do next time. It's, you know, it, there was nothing we could do to mitigate that. Um, and so that was, I'd say that was our, that was our lowest point mm. in the business. I mean, it hasn't stayed as the lowest point because nature is incredibly resilient and it bounces back. And, you know, we now have this incredible, exciting, shall I say, vineyard where I, you know, what we're doing is really starting to, to take effect. Uh, you know, that's a difficult thing about doing agriculture is you can't make a change and see what happens the next day or the next week you make a change and you might see whether it's worked in a year's time or two years time and mm. that's that's pretty tough for uh yes. entrepreneurs to cope with uh yes, who so want I to see oh, very gosh. quick change yes. and let's do this oh that's it done move let's on next one yeah so yeah. but that i would say that for me i mean it's it's still a very raw uh emotion it's it was pretty recent but that was pretty tough for us to cope with and chrissy what would you say do you have the same high? What would be your greatest high in your business that you've had over the last 20 years? I, I actually, I know that there's there's two. And the first was when we got to, we realized we could solve the firehose problem when we got that size, when we got that scale. Um, I'd have mentioned that before. But I think the second one was, was and Elvis articulated it very well at the time, because I remember saying, this is amazing, we've solved the firehose problem. But he said, actually, this, this isn't the best thing that we've done. You know, we started really early on an apprenticeship program and our first apprentice, we hired just as she was a school leaver and she's still with us now. Wow. And when she came to us, she, she didn't really want to talk. She was extremely shy. She'd had a really tough go at school 
And a couple of months in, her parents came to us and said, we, you know, we don't even recognize her. She's so happy. And you've just completely and totally and utterly changed her life. And we, we, we didn't do anything except for be kind and offer her an opportunity. And that was, that was so powerful for us then and still is now because she's still here because we realized that actually there isn't a limit to what the business can do. Yes, we've said we're going to tackle materials and we're going to rescue materials and we're going to transform them. We're going to donate money. But why do we have to stop there? Why can't we be mm. doing apprenticeships? Why can't we be running a farm? Why can't we be taking on fiduciary duty and the Companies Act and whatever else. So I think it, that was a big moment for both of us because we realized that there was no limit and no holds barred and and definitely no rules. Like, just try and tell me what I can't do. Just try, just try, because that will definitely be what I'm going to start to do on Monday. <laughs> Elvis, you warned me about her. This is, this is, this is what you... It's isn't it? It, it, it is infectious. Infectious. I mean, wow. And is that your greatest high as well, Elvis, would you say? The 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 the, the breadth that you can um the limitlessness of of what your vision and missions are. Yeah, I think my body sometimes doesn't agree that 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 are what we can do is limitless. When we planted uh <laughs> twelve thousand vines, that was pretty hard. But um no, I it it is sometimes we do have to kind of stop and have a look. You know, we've just built our our, um, our workshop in in Kent on the farm and it's you know it's a near passive building made from straw bales you know from the next door farm it's basically power neutral in terms of heating and power usage and you know just to think that we did that from some piles of old rubbish basically is pretty is pretty powerful and pretty uh pretty it gets us out of bed every morning put it that way yeah Mm. gosh infectious that is that is you two absolutely i have got um to that point in the podcast where i'm going to ask you both if you would read a letter to your younger selves um i don't know if you've shared i always love doing it with um a duo especially nope. a couple but you haven't shared i love that um i'm wondering um Elvis, would you go first um, yeah. in reading a letter to your younger self? It's it's dark outside now, and I haven't got enough lights on, so I'm going to have to do that awkward <laughs> thing where I uh, can't quite see the paper. <laughs> Over to you. Okay, so my 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 letter to my younger self. Hey, dude, it's you. Okay, I wanted to say, keep going. You're doing all right. I have a vested interest in making sure you stay on track. So promise me that whenever life offers you an opportunity, take it. Even if, and especially if, it means stepping out of your comfort zone. Always say yes, especially if you get invited to a superheroes party on a junk in Hong Kong. Perhaps uh, an explanation might be needed. But beware of your kryptonite. You are completely and utterly helpless to the charms of beautiful, intelligent and passionate Canadians. Good luck and make me proud. (laughs) 20 years. My goodness. And it's still right there. (laughs) And I can see it in both your faces. What a beautiful thing. Cressy. You will never, ever guess where you'll be and what you'll be doing and how lucky you are. So don't try. I'm not going to give you any advice 
because I'm terrified of derailing you. You'll have seen Back to the Future by now, so you know what I mean. But I want you to do a few things for us. In about 2019, I want you to call Mr. Strawback and tell him he was the best teacher you ever had and the reason you're still curious about everything. Two, when you go camping, check your kit before you go. Make sure you have the tent, the fly, and all the poils. Just trust me. Three, the time with you have with your grandparents, you know, as a function of time, that it won't be long enough. I want you to hug Grandma Kenny even more fiercely. I want you to do a better job of hiding Grandpa Westling's keys. They are your conscience, your guardian angels, the voices in your ear reminding you every day to do more and be better. Please show them the debt of gratitude that I feel so keenly now. Go and do the dishes with your siblings. Turn up the music. Have a little water fight. And commit the sound of all your laughter to memory. It is the most important thing that you have. The love for them and the love for all the people that you're going to meet who are all spectacular and wonderful. <laughs> you got me on a Friday night. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> You're spectacular, the two of you. Mike, I just, I'm, I'm slightly speechless. I'm slightly embarrassed that we all operate not on your frequency. And actually, it's been a real honour. And I'm going to hold this podcast dear. And I think people that listen to this, we all need to do better. We need to be more uh, Elvis and Cressy. That's what we need to be. We And thank you so much for your time. It's been um, very, very powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm-hmm.